Good evening. Well, thank you all for coming out this evening um, to find out a little bit more about pathology. As you've heard, my name is Susie Lishman. I'm a histopathologist. That means I make my living by looking at tissues under the microscope to make a diagnosis. The vast majority of the tissues I look at are from the living. So if you have a lump or bump removed, you have a biopsy. If perhaps you have a tumour and you have a breast, a leg, an arm removed, then that would all come to me in the lab to have a look at it under the microscope to find out exactly what's wrong with you. But it's particularly nice for me to be back here because about 30 years ago, this is where my journey to becoming a pathologist started in this very lecture theatre as a student at Girton College when I came here to study medicine in 1986. Um, so first time I've been back in here since then. It's changed a little bit. looks a bit smarter than I remember. Um, and as you've heard, I'm now a, a consultant at Peterborough City Hospital. I've been there for just over 10 years now, and uh, that's where I earn my living. So when I tell people that I'm a pathologist, this is what they think of. Depending on how old you are, they think, oh, it's CSI, silent witness. If you're my age, you might think Quincy. Um, but they think that I spend all my time investigating unnatural deaths, perhaps going to court to give evidence to try and catch the murderer but I'm afraid that's not really what I do at all. So forensic pathology, which is the pathology specialty that's involved in the investigation of unnatural deaths, is just one of 20 pathology specialties. I can't even see forensics up there, is there? Uh, there it is, thank you. Uh, and in fact, there are only about 40 forensic pathologists in the whole country. And that's because we don't really need them. We don't have that many murders. Um, so the sort that you see on television to start, it's not quite that glamorous, um, and people aren't going out uh, in the middle of the night investigating crimes, getting involved with suspects and the police and whatever else you see on television. Um, but it's actually a tiny, tiny part of what pathologists do. All the other pathology specialties work for the benefit of the living. So I mentioned I'm a histopathologist, and I look at, look at bit of tissue. But if you look at the other types, um, let me see, haematology, the study of the blood. So if you have a blood test, perhaps for anemia, uh, or if perhaps you develop a condition like leukemia or lymphoma, then a haematologist would be the specialist who would look after you. Medical microbiology, that's the study of infection, of the sort of bacteria, viruses, parasites that can cause infections. And so it's their job to diagnose what's wrong with you, to find out what's the right antibiotic or other drug to treat you with, and to try to stop infection spreading from one person to another. That's a very important part of their role. Uh, clinical biochemistry is another really big pathology specialty, and that's when you have blood tests, most of them are going to the clinical biochemistry laboratory. And that looks at the levels of chemicals in your blood. So it'll look at elements like sodium and potassium. It will look at chemicals like urea to see how your kidneys are working. And it's a way in which we can find out how all the different organs of the body are working. And if there's something wrong, we can try to find out what and put it right. So pathology is a really diverse range of specialties. It's not just one thing. And most of it is done for the living. So you've heard that my mission really is to highlight the important role that pathology plays in healthcare. Now, why do I do that? Well, it's really a part of every patient's journey. Hardly any patient will go through the NHS without having some sort of pathology test, perhaps blood, te blood tests to find out what their organs are doing, or if you go to have an operation, you'll have a swab to see if you've got any infections. Um, almost everybody has a pathology test at some point. 
And why do we need to know? Well, we have to make lifestyle decisions all the time. Do we smoke? Do we exercise? Do we try to cut out salt? Do we have a keep an eye on our cholesterol? All of these things relate to pathology. And the more you understand about pathology, which is a study of disease and how our body can go wrong, the better equipped you are to understand how to keep it fit and well. We also have to um, deal with being bombarded with headlines like these. Now, I'm sure these aren't your usual newspapers, but uh, really, they're everywhere. Uh, if you read the Daily Mail, I don't know how you get out of bed in the morning, except I'm sure staying in bed also gives you cancer. Um, but the more we all understand about pathology, science, medicine, and how our bodies work, the better equipped we are to make decisions about whether we believe this stuff or not. And it's not just that. We have to feed ourselves. We have to feed our families. Now, if you believed everything you read on the label, you could live forever. Oops, sorry, I've gone on too many. You could live forever if you drink the pomegranate juice, how to treat death. Uh, these frosted breakfast cereals, absolutely covered in sugar, are clinically shown to improve attentiveness by 20%. So if you want your children to do well at school, and who doesn't, feed them loads of sugar for breakfast. And of course, these biscuits are fine because it's organic flour and sugar. Um, and nice to know that this hydrates better than water. Um, so, you know, we need to have an understanding of what these things mean so that we can make decisions and understand that probably the pomegranate juice isn't really going to help you treat death on its own. So pathology is about so much more than just diagnosis. We're involved in preventing diseases from developing in the first place. I already mentioned microbiology, stopping infection passing from one person to another. But also pathologists are involved in things like cancer screening. If you have a cervical smear, for example, um, that's having a look for precancerous changes on the cervix. And pathologists interpret those smears to determine whether women need any treatment to prevent them from developing cancer in the future. And similarly, the bowel cancer screening program. The pathologists will look at any polyps that are found to make sure that they're not precancerous. So we can actually prevent people from developing diseases in the first place. Diagnosis is the big bit that we do, actually telling doctors what's wrong with you. Um, they may see a lump, feel something abnormal, but it's the pathologist who actually tell them what's causing that. And another big part of what we do is explaining to other doctors what the treatment should be. So we can have a look at a breast cancer, for example, and we can say whether or not it's responsive to the hormone estrogen. And if it is, we know then that if you give the patient a a drug that blocks estrogen, it's likely to stop that tumour from growing. Whereas if it's not responsive, the drug won't make any difference. And so pathology plays a very important part in personalised medicine, in making sure that each individual patient gets the best treatment for their personal disorder, whatever that may be. So as I said, my mission is to tell the world about how important pathology is. I do that through talking to schools, by training. This is one of my, my trainees teaching the next generation of pathologists, going on the television occasionally, um, and telling the Secretary of State for Health just how important it is to invest in pathology services. Some of these are more successful than others, I should say. Um, now, although I said that pathology isn't all about dead bodies, that is a part that people tend to find fascinating. If we'd advertise this lecture about, come along and find out about your electrolytes and see what your sodium does when you eat a banana, 
Probably this room wouldn't be quite as full. So I have learnt that if I talk to you about what postmortems involve, um, then it's a way of explaining about the broader role of pathology as well as talking to you about something that you may find interesting. So I developed a virtual autopsy in about 2008, um, and since then I've adapted it for all sorts of audiences. I've done it for groups like this, I've done it for school children, I've done it in art galleries, museums, um, the Royal Institution, um, all sorts of places uh, with different themes. This was the Cheltenham Science Festival. This one was the Harrogate Crime Writers Festival when they all wanted to know how to commit the perfect murder. Uh, this was Latitude Music Festival. This is my great cool claim to fame that I was on the literature stage at Latitude uh, doing the world's first virtual brain autopsy. This is the old Operating Theatre Museum, which is a tiny little venue um, up above uh, a church in, uh, near London Bridge in London. If you have a chance to go there, it's a fabulous museum. And this is another music festival in the pouring rain. Half of the audience were asleep um, <laughs> or suffering the after effects of the rest of the festival. Um, uh, and so I've done all sorts. I did uh, a whole series in Grantham uh, related to gravity, uh, death of an astronaut. I was asked to come up with some sort of theme that linked it to Isaac Newton, who was at school in uh, Grantham. And so I thought, well, gravity, astronauts, I'll talk about what would happen if an astronaut died. Uh, but today, I'm talking to you about the perils of modern life, which in fact is just doing a standard <coughs> autopsy, because we are all subject to the dangers in a modern life. Now, we always ask for evaluation after um, our events to try and get feedback about how to improve them. And you will be getting an email from the organisers to ask you to give some feedback. Um, we're very grateful if you take a couple of minutes to do that when you get it. And most people enjoy themselves, but not everybody. <laughs> so, I do have to give you a health warning. There will be no real blood, there will be no real dead body. However, I know from experience that just the descriptions of death, dead bodies, what the internal organs look like, and I will have some photographs of some internal organs, some real ones to show you, that this can make some people quite queasy. If you feel unwell, please don't be embarrassed, but I would advise you to just step outside and get some fresh air, have a drink of water. You'd be amazed at the sort of people who keel over and I'm not the sort of doctor you want if you have a head injury. <laughs> so I've had six foot six rugby players keel over. There is no predicting who it could be. I have occasionally gone out of my lecture theatre afterwards to find a very apologetic member of the audience saying, I, you know, I just poo-pooed it when you said that thing about people fainting, but it was me. I was the fainter. And I'm so sorry. I was really enjoying it. I just thought I was going to faint. So if you feel unwell, please just step out. It would be unusual in a room this fall for there not to be somebody who needs to step outside. Um, so please do so. Don't wait until you keel over. So, what I'm going to talk to you about, um, I'm going to talk you through the procedure of an autopsy, um, show you some of the instruments that we use, and if you'd like to come up afterwards and have a closer look at those, you're welcome to. When I do this for a very small group, I pass the instruments around but that doesn't really work in such a, a large group. I'm going to show you a little bit about what a normal organ looks like and what an abnormal one looks like, so you can see the sorts of things that we're looking out for when we do a post-mortem. And I should say, 
Post-mortem and autopsy mean exactly the same thing. So post-mortem is from the Latin meaning after death, so it's just an examination done after somebody's dead. And autopsy is from the Greek meaning to see for oneself, and it's to open up the body and actually see what caused the death. And so they mean the same thing, so I'll use the two terms interchangeably. And finally, just a, a minute or two at the end, about what the future of post-mortems might be. They haven't really changed very much in the last 500 years, but it may be that they'll change soon. So the first stage of almost anything you do in the NHS is the paperwork. So before I go anywhere near the body or near my instruments, I look at the paperwork. Now the majority of post-mortems these days are done for the coroner. So this is somebody who has a legal and sometimes also a medical qualification. And it's their duty to find out how somebody died, who they were, when they died and how they died or, or why they died. Um, and so if the cause of death is not known, for example, you just drop down dead in the supermarket and nobody has any idea why, then that case would be referred to the coroner who would investigate. And it's up to the coroner whether they request a post-mortem examination or not. And they don't require anybody's consent to do that. So you don't have to ask the next of kin for consent. Coroner's post-mortems are also done if somebody dies in custody, so in police custody, even if the cause of death is completely obvious. It would always be referred to the coroner to make sure that everything's completely above board. Um, also, if there's any link to an industrial accident or an industrial disease, uh, or if there's any unnatural causes. Now, I'm not a forensic pathologist, so if I was concerned that death was due to murder or somebody else was involved, then I would not do the post-mortem. But I do do post-mortems on some unnatural causes, for example, road traffic accidents, or people who die from suicide, um, then I would do those. But the vast majority of the post-mortem examinations that I do as a general NHS hospital pathologist are people who have either died in hospital or more commonly died at home and they just haven't seen a doctor recently, so nobody knows exactly why they've died. So they may have an idea, perhaps somebody's had heart disease for a long time, but maybe they've recently had an infection, and so they'd be referred to me to try and find out exactly why. So I would have a look at the paperwork to make sure that I've got the right consent to go ahead with the post-mortem, that the coroner has actually signed the form to say that they are requesting a post-mortem. And then I want to know the history, the story about what's happened. So I don't just go and have a look at a body and try and work out what's wrong with them. In the same way as when you go to the doctor, they ask you questions before they start to examine you. So I want to know the age of the person, their occupation, and what were the circumstances around their death, perhaps what medication were they taking, had they had any operations in the past. I don't want to spend half an hour searching for an appendix if it turns out it was removed when the person was a child, for example. So I need as much information as possible. And this is the point at which the person on whom I'm going to perform the post-mortem becomes a real person to me. So before I've even seen their body, already I'm starting to build up a picture of this person. And we never forget that this is somebody's loved one, somebody's father, somebody's son, somebody's mother, that we are examining. And I often describe the post-mortem examination as the final surgical operation. This is a bit like having surgery in the operating theater, it's just you don't wake up from it afterwards. So it's not done in a bloody and gory way, it's very dignified and respectful, it's done very systematically in a standardised way to make sure that we get the most information we possibly can from the procedure.
Once the paperwork's done, we move on to the external examination. So before I even pick up a scalpel, I will have a look at the body. Now, I didn't use to say this, but I'm going to point out this is a living person. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason why I'm saying that is because I have in the past at the end said I'd like a round of applause for the star of the show, and my body has sat up. And several people have gone, oh, I thought it was a body. <laughs> I hope it's fairly evident that it would not be appropriate for me to have brought a dead body in the back of my mini <laughs> when I came here this evening. So we have a very still model, but this is a living person, so no dead bodies here today. So before I start, uh, I need to do an external examination, and the first thing I need to do is make sure I've got the right body. It would be completely terrible to start to do a post-mortem on the wrong person. And so normally, people will have one of those hospital wristbands uh, around the wrists, these types that are very difficult to remove, and they'll often have one on the ankle as well. And so I will check the details against my paperwork, and if there's any discrepancy at all, then I'll contact the coroner and we'll sort it out before I leave the scene. So once I've established that I've got the right person, I'll then examine the outside of the body. And I'm looking for clues in the same way that any doctor examining a patient is looking for clues as to what's wrong. So I'll have a look for scars. Is there an appendix operation scar? Um, is there a great big scar down the middle that suggests the person may have had open heart surgery, for example? Is there a leg missing? Like what has this person uh, had done to them? Um, I also have a look at things like the fingertips to see if they're blue. Perhaps if people haven't had very much oxygen circulating because their hearts haven't been working properly, the fingertips can get something called cyanosis, which looks blue. And so that gives me a clue that there may be something wrong with the heart. So I have a look at the fingertips, the nails, always have a look at the palms, the hands. I'm just looking for clues. One of the biggest clues in the hands is actually nicotine stains, because smoking causes so many diseases, not just of the lungs, but it increases the risk of developing many different cancers. And so knowing that somebody smokes is really helpful in guiding me towards coming to the right conclusion. What I should say is, no matter what the history told me, and no matter what I see on the outside of the body, I do pretty much exactly the same procedure on everybody. So I don't just look in the head if somebody had a headache and fell over. I don't just look at the heart if somebody had chest pain and collapsed. I examine the whole body, but I might focus in on any abnormalities that I find while I'm doing it. So I have a look at the, the face, the head, I have a look at the eyes, I have a look to see if there's any evidence of anemia, I have a look at the teeth, just to document the dentition, because that can tell you quite a lot about somebody, whether they've looked after their teeth properly, or whether they've got gum disease or missing teeth. Um, I have a look pretty much the whole body, and then we always roll the body over to have a look at the back. Now I think it's apocryphal, but there are stories of pathologists who did a whole post-mortem and didn't bother to have a look and find the knife in the back. <laughs> I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, but it's the sort of thing you would fail your exam for if you were doing your Royal College of Pathologists Fellowship exam and you didn't look at the back of the body, you'd be in big trouble. There is talk of a rather mean professor who used to put a hair between two toes and he'd come back at the end and say, okay, tell me about this body. And you'd have a look, and if the hair was still there, you would fail. 
like that and not straight up the middle is because we never forget that this is somebody's loved one and they may want to see this person afterwards. And so the last thing they want is to see an incision at the front of the neck. By doing it like this, if you put a shirt collar or a shroud or anything around the neck, you cannot see it. It's completely invisible. And then the next part of the incision is right down the middle of the body. Down the belly button and down to the pubic bone. So that's our Y incision. And then I would use my forceps and my scalpel to hold the skin and then carefully cut underneath and peel the skin back. I'm very careful not to do what we call buttonholing, which is where you cut through the skin after you've pulled it back. Because we, again, we never forget that we want to reconstruct the body afterwards. And the important thing that I didn't say at the beginning, firstly, I don't normally dress like this for dinner. <laughs> Um, so I take all the organs out first. 
Um, so then, I've got my tongue that I've released, and I can cut all the attachments, and the tongue, the aorta, the esophagus, the trachea, all of the vessels will come away, and I'll just cut along the backbone, um, and they'll bring the heart and the lungs with them. I have to cut through the diaphragm, which is the muscle between the chest and the abdominal cavities, the one that helps us to breathe. And so I will cut that out of the way and then carry on and take out the abdominal organs. And I just take the whole lot. Sometimes we just have a, a table over the feet that we dissect at. Sometimes it's a completely separate table. What that then leaves is the body cavity and it often has fluids in it. And that's where these come in. Now these may look a lot like labels. They're labels. These are very posh scientific labels. And, and what these tell me is how much one whole scoop is in terms of volume. So this one is 120 mils. So if somebody has got fluid on their chest, for example, and I want to measure how much, then I will take scoops out, and I know that if, I, if there's three scoops of fluid, it's 360 mils. So it saves me having to measure it separately. Similarly, if somebody had first um, a blood vessel and there's a lot of blood in the abdomen, I might need my big scoop to measure how much blood they have. So these are dual purpose, very expensive. My next, not quite so expensive instrument, going to talk to you about my sponge, but I'll talk to you about my scissors. So you see these scissors, they've got a little curve on them, but otherwise they're just like normal scissors. Um, and actually I don't use these very much for cutting in the way that you cut paper. I do the opposite, it's called blunt dissection. So I put the point of the scissors into some tissue and then I open them up and it forces tissues apart. And that's a really good way of separating tissue without damaging it. Whereas if you just go straight in and cut, you might cut through an important blood vessel or an attachment or a nerve. Whereas blunt dissection, just forcing things apart, um, makes means they sort of split along the natural planes and it makes it easier to dissect. So not quite so much for cutting. Now one, the first bit of the um, organs that I tend to get rid of is the bowel. And that's because it can smell. Now people often think that dead bodies must smell a lot. I have to tell you, they don't smell much worse than live bodies most of the time. <laughs> uh, certainly if you've ever done an operation and opened up the abdomen and somebody who's got peritonitis, inflammation, because something burst, dead bodies smell better than that. <laughs> um, but still, the bowel is full of bowel contents and I don't particularly want to have that under my nose while I'm doing all the dissection. So I do tend to get the bowel out of the way. Um, and for that, I use these scissors to open the bowel. So we have the small intestine, between three and five meters of it, all coiled up um, in the middle of the body, and then the large intestine that goes around the outside of the abdomen, about 1.5 meters, five feet. Um, and I use these to open the bowel. Now there's a special type of scissors, called an enterotome, or bowel scissors, and it's a sort of little bit and one of the arms of the scissors is slightly longer than the other. And this is so, when you put it into the bowel, which is really just a very long tube, you can carry on cutting because the lip keeps the next bit of the bowel open for you. The way I think about it is if 
one piece and then move it up and cut one bit. It'll take you forever to cut across your open bit with that. What you want to do is to move straight across it like that. And this is what this does with the bow. It means you can cut all the way down and this stays in the hole in the middle and keeps it open for you. So you can open the bow more easily. They're quite clever. I don't know who invented them. I'd probably want to find out. But uh, that's a very useful piece of equipment. Once I've opened the bow, I'll wash it out and you normally have sort of shower facilities Another high-tech piece of equipment comes in. 
called a striker sword. Uh, it's a bit like the sword that removes your plaster of Paris if you've broken your arm. It vibrates and it cuts the hard stuff without damaging the soft skin underneath. And similarly, if you use it uh, on the head, it will cut through the hard bone without damaging the brain too much underneath. But I was actually brought up with a very traditional uh, anatomical pathology technologist who insisted on using a saw. And this is what used to be his. And he continued to use it throughout his career, very recently retired. Uh, he felt he had a lot more control using a saw because he knew exactly how deep you were going. And if you took great care, um, then it was, he thought, a better way of doing it. So that's how I learned to do it. He also thought that you get less of an aerosol, and that's where you get bits of tissue flying up into the air. Um, and the vibrating saw can splash material up, and you don't particularly want to be breathing in uh, bits of that person. Whereas this is a bit more controllable, and you can go quite slowly, and so you get less of an aerosol. Uh, so some of the purists prefer to continue to use this. So, using the saw and great skill, you cut just enough so you go through the bone, and you can feel a little give just as you go through. And you'll cut about halfway round the front of the skull. <coughs> now, it's a plastic skull. Uh, whenever you get these skulls, they always have the uh, top of the skull coming off in a straight line like that. That's not how you do it when you're removing a person's skull. So you do the first half like that, but then you would make an angle and go up at an angle. And that's because, to show you, if you take the top off the skull like an egg, when you put it back on, it can slip backwards and forwards very easily with nothing to stop it from moving. And it's slightly disconcerting, I imagine, <laughs> if you are going to visit your dearly departed loved one and you find that their skull is not quite straight. <laughs> so, to make sure that it is, it's effectively a notch, but it means it just comes up an inch or so. And that angle means that the skull can't slip backwards and forwards. Um, and so it goes back and stays in place. But even once you've cut around the skull, the top doesn't just come away in your hand. There are lots of membranes that hold your skull close to the brain to protect it. And so we have to overcome those. And we have these two instruments. The first, one of my favourites, it's called the T-chisel, because it's T-shaped and it's got a chisel on it. Uh, it's got this little pointy end here. And this is a mallet. There's nothing remotely technical about this, it came from B&Q. Um, but the clever thing about this is, is that you put the, tea, the sharp bit of the chisel into the gap that you cut. You give it a knock, and then twist. And the handle, the T, is very helpful for giving you leverage to be able to just open. And you can then overcome those membranes that are trying to hold the skull down. And you can do that all the way around, almost using it like a key to take the top off. And then you remove the top of the skull to reveal the brain. <laughs> now, if you watch Silent Witness, which I do actually do sometimes, when they take the brain out, they sort of hold it up like this and say, ah, brain, yes. 
can't do that with a real brain. The real, a real brain has just come out of your head. Has texture, a bit like blancmange or set yogurt. You can hold it very carefully in two hands, but if you were to squeeze it, your fingers would go straight through it. It's very soft, that's why it has your skull to protect it. It doesn't have fibres and sinews and muscles and tendons and ligaments and all the things that the rest of our body has because it doesn't need it. It's just full of nerve cells with a very fatty coating, so it's quite fatty and greasy, but very soft. So you couldn't just hold it up like this because it would fall through your hands. So there's something next time you watch inside Silent Witness uh, that you can tell your friends. If you want a brain to be able to hold it like this or slice it and for it to keep its form, then you need to fix or preserve it. It takes about six weeks to preserve a brain fully. You suspend it in a bucket of formalin, which is the fixative that we use. It's a bit like pickling. Um, and you have to replace the formalin frequently to make sure the concentration stays high. Um, but it diffuses very slowly into a brain because there's so much fat and so it doesn't like it. So we normally have to suspend it for six weeks. And of course, that causes troubles with the funeral, with putting the brain back in the body to be buried. And so we only do it in quite special circumstances. So, so I've got the brain in the skull. I would cut through the nerves, so the optic nerve coming to the eyes, the olfactory nerves coming to the nose, and all the different ma major nerves, and then remove the brain from the skull. And then I can put my brain to one side. And again, with my trusty sponge, can clean out the cavity and have a look. And I'm particularly looking for fractures, um, particularly when I'm doing post-mortems on people who've been involved in car accidents or have any sort of head injury. Skull fractures are really quite bad news. So having a look at the bones to see if there's any, any breaks or tears.
when we're in utero, when we're absolutely tiny, it beats until the moment that we die. You can't really survive without big bits of it. You can survive without a little bit, but once you damage a lot of the heart, then it just stops beating completely. And so I would take my scalpel and I'd do cuts at about five millimeter intervals down the main arteries, looking for any blockage. And blockages can be quite focal, they can be quite small, maybe only two or three millimeters. It doesn't mean the entire artery will be blocked. And every so often I find something like that, and that's a blood clot that has completely blocked the coronary artery. And that's a heart attack when somebody suddenly gets severe chest pain and collapses and dies. That's what we see. And here just shows you what a normal artery should look like. There's one with a bit of atheroma making it a bit narrow, and that's quite severe, and there's a high risk that that will get blocked. And if I look at that under the microscope, just go back for a while. Sorry, it stopped the typing. There we are. So if I look under the microscope, this is a normal coronary artery. This pink bit here is the muscular wall of the artery. Uh, and that's how it should look when you're young and fit. And this is what it looks like when it gets blocked. Uh, all these little lines, these are cholesterol crystals. Um, and this is the thick atheroma within the wall. That's where the hole was in the middle, and that's now full of blood clot. And that's what a heart attack looks like under the microscope. And so when I then start to slice the heart muscle to have a look at the actual uh, the muscular part. And so that's the left ventricle again that I mentioned, that big chunky part of the heart that does all of the pumping. It has a thicker wall than the right. And if somebody's had a blockage in this artery, then this part of the heart starts to die. Now, if the heart attack is so severe that somebody dies straight away, then there are no changes further down because there hasn't been time. But if they survive and then die a few days later, for example, then I can see these changes here in this part of the heart that has started to die. I can see that both with the naked eye and under the microscope, that it's effectively a dead bit of heart. Now, if the person survives for a long time, that heart attack, you get a scar like this. Because this bit of tissue is dead, it's like a scar anywhere else. So it doesn't function, it can't pump, but it's a solid bit of scar tissue um, and you can survive with some of that. But it can make the heart bigger um, than it ought to be because it just balloons out and it wouldn't work very well because it hasn't got any muscle left. And if we look at that, And this is what it looks like when I take a slice of the heart. This is normal muscle here. That's a normal hole in the middle. And this yellowy bit is dead heart. And so the coronary artery that supplied this part of the heart, um, nearly half of the heart muscle, has obviously been blocked and it's killed this. And so this is dead muscle, and if the person survived long enough, that would form a scar, um, but obviously on this occasion they didn't. So that's the sort of thing I'm looking for. It's not normally that extensive, that's a really um, good example of what it looks like. And the other thing I look for in the heart is the size of the muscle. This is a normal sized heart, about 350 to 375 grams. Your heart 
bigger you are, so if you're a six foot six rugby player, you will have a bigger heart than a four foot six little old lady. And the more exercise you do, the bigger your heart gets because it's had to pump more, so athletes typically have bigger hearts than non-athletes. But in general, this is roughly the size of a normal heart, and this is a heart with something called cardiomyopathy. This is the sort of um, heart that you may have heard about. So there was a footballer recently who collapsed on the pitch, and that's because he had this heart condition where his heart was too big. It was typically the sort of thing that young athletes suddenly, very fit and healthy, and they collapse because they weren't known to have something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the heart gets too big, but it's not just more of the same muscle that you normally have. The muscle is very disarrayed and disordered, so it doesn't pump in a coordinated way, and it can just suddenly stop. So I have a look at the size of the heart. The other thing that can make your heart bigger than it should be is high blood pressure. So if your blood pressure is high, your heart has to pump extra hard to get the blood around, and it makes your heart a bit thicker than it ought to be. Um, so here, for example, this is somebody who had very high blood pressure, and the muscle is thicker than normal, and the gap in the middle where the blood should be, there's hardly any space left. So you can see the heart will be pumping away, but it's not actually very efficient with not getting very much blood around the body with each beat. And that's why it has to work so hard. So quickly moving on to the lungs, I realise I've uh, still got quite a lot of body to do in the next 10 minutes. Uh, uh, lungs of a non-smoker, so we didn't live in a city. Nice pink, spongy, pinky white colour. Uh, probably most of us, if you um, walk past exhaust fumes or live in a city, you'll get bits of carbon and particles in your lungs particularly around the airways, so it's sort of a marble scattered appearance. If you work in a coal mine or smoke a lot, then your lungs will be completely black. So just by slicing the lungs, I can get an idea of where the person lived and what sort of lifestyle they may have lived. Um, things I'm looking for in the lung, particularly pneumonia. Now this is pneumonia. Normally, the lung is a bit like a sponge. It's got lots of air in it, so if you squeeze it, air comes out. When you get pneumonia, the heart effectively fills up with pus. So you get infection in your lung and it fills it up and that's what's happened here. This is something called lobar pneumonia because this whole lobe of the lung has filled up with pale pus. And instead of being soft like a sponge, it's hard and solid. And if you squeeze it, all that comes out is pus, no air. So you can imagine that if that's your lung, you're getting a bit of air up into the top, but nothing down here. It'd be really hard to breathe. And so if you get a lot of that, and it's very extensive, you can die from pneumonia. Sometimes the pneumonia is confined just to a lobe. Sometimes it's scattered around the whole lung, around the um, airways, called bronchopneumonia. But it's a very common cause of death, particularly in the elderly. This is lung cancer, about 80% of which are associated with smoking. There's some very unlucky people who get it despite having never smoked. Um, and there are two main types of lung cancer according to where they're found. This type is quite central, so if you put a, a bronchoscope, a little telescope down, down your windpipe and down into the lungs, you can actually see the lung cancer pushing in, into the airways, it shouldn't be there. The other type here is quite peripheral, so it's right down at the bottom of the lung, so you couldn't see that with your telescope because you couldn't get down to it. Um, and these can react in different ways, and there can be different types of cancers, uh, and they have different risk factors. But they're two of the things that we can look for.
kind of lung cancer. The other thing I look for in the lungs, and something that is often overlooked and missed, <coughs> is blood clots. So you know when you go flying long distances, people worry about deep vein thrombosis and blood clots in the veins of the legs. The reason people are so worried about it, they don't cause too much harm in your legs, but if they detach and travel around your circulatory system and then they lodge in the lungs, that can be fatal. So a thrombus means a clot, and so this is somebody's leg, and so they've got some blood clot. And that could be perhaps because their blood's a bit thicker than it should be, or perhaps they've been very mobile. So if you're ill and you're in bed, that increases your risk of getting clots in your leg. Or if you've just flown back from Australia in economy, then, uh, which I understand is terrible, um, uh, then you can get these blood clots in your leg, which is why it's so important to keep moving and keep your muscles pumping to stop the blood from clotting. Because if that then travels all the way around to your lungs, it causes something called an embolus, which is a clot that's travelled throughout the body. Uh, and this is what it looks like. As soon as I cut open the uh, blood vessels in the lungs, out pops this great big lump of blood clot. And that can kill you straight away. If you get small bits of this, it can cause chest pain and shortness of breath. But if it's big, it can be immediately fatal. And so when people collapse suddenly, people may think they've had a heart attack or perhaps a stroke, but actually quite often it's a pulmonary embolus. Uh, that's why you're often given these really attractive stockings when you've had an operation to keep your legs pumping and why you may be given drugs to thin the blood to stop clots from forming because this is the big worry after operations or any reason why you may be um, still and not walking about. The interesting thing is when I look at this blood clot, rather than taking on the form of the vessel that it's in in the lungs, it has the shape and size of the vessel in the leg. So if I take it out and unravel it, it's often long and you can see branches where the branches of the leg bone have been, and it's traveled around the body and then coiled up in the lung. So that tells me that it's come from somewhere else, that it didn't form in the lung, but it's traveled around the body. So quickly through the rest of the organs, so the digestive tract, so I would cut down the esophagus, the food pipe, and that's what this looks like, into the stomach, and you can see the stomach has all of these folds, and that's why we can eat so much because it gives you such a big surface area and it means it can stretch um, and get bigger to hold your food and it also helps with starting to digest your food. So that's a normal stomach, but I'd be looking for things like ulcers, uh, tumours, any abnormality like that. That brings us on to our biggest internal organ, it's the liver. So the biggest organ in the whole body is actually the skin because it has lots of different functions, but the internal one is the liver. It can weigh about 1,500 grams. I've seen one that weighed 4,000 grams, so four kilos, I could hardly lift it. Um, but that's a normal liver, and it looks nice and smooth and even. This is a cirrhotic liver. So if you drink a huge amount of alcohol for a long time, it starts to damage your liver, you get scarring, and it gets all these little nodules on it. And if you have a look closer, each little nodule has got scarring around the outside. And once you get to that stage, it's irreversible. There's nothing that can be done to undo the scars. Um, so better not to get to that stage. But this is what liver cirrhosis looks like. So that can cause your liver to start to fail, in which case the only treatment is a transplant. And it also 
Um, and here, for comparison, is the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease. Getting increasingly common as we all live longer, and you get loss of the cortical uh, nerve cells, which means that you start to have problems with remembering, with planning, um, and functions like that. And then the gaps between the uh, bits of the brain here get, get wider. So you can see the brain overall is smaller and there's much less brain tissue. And this particularly affects an area of the brain uh, called the hippocampus, which is involved in um, making new memories, which is why many people with Alzheimer's disease have very good recollection of things that happened a long time ago, but their brain is unable to create the circuits that um, control new memories. And if I think there's something very complicated in the brain, normally you would know about that before the person died, then I may send the brain straight off to a specialist neuropathologist who will fix it for six weeks and then examine it very carefully. But in most people, particularly if the cause of death has already been found, I will slice the brain immediately using something like this, uh, a bread knife, which is what I use for big organs like the liver, an actual bread knife. Um, and similarly for the brain, cut it about one centimetre intervals, and I'm looking for tumours, cysts, infection, all this. This is a stroke, another very common cause of death, linked to things like high blood pressure, um, and very similar risk factors to heart disease. So heart disease and stroke, the two biggest causes of death put together. And so it's a stroke in that there's been bleeding into the brain, so it's destroyed that part of the brain. <coughs> so, once we've looked at all the organs, and I realise that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour for, for the organs, um, then we need to reconstruct the body. Probably the most important part of the whole post-mortem is putting everything back, to, back in. So all the material that was taken out will go back in. The only things we can't put in are fluids and things that have washed away down the drain, so we can't put all the blood back in, for example. Um, but all the organs and tissues will go back into the same body that they came out of. They never get put into the next body alive. <laughs> but because they're all quite liquid, by the time they've all been sliced up, they go into a bag. So we have a bag that sits um, in the chest and abdominal cavity, and all the organs go back in, including the brain. And that's because if you imagine if you cut up a blancmange and diced it, you couldn't possibly fit it back into the skull again. Um, so all of that goes back in here. And then the bag is rolled up, and then we take the rib shield, which you remember I put to one side earlier, and that fits straight back in over the top. And then pull the two pieces of skin back together, and then with a continuous stitch, sew back up the skin and round the outside, and then there again. And then putting the um, head back together, so the brain's already gone on the inside, we may pack the brain with some cotton wool just to absorb any fluids, put the skull back on, and one trick that I learned is to have a long strip of newspaper and just put it around the join in the skull, and it means that when you pull the skin back, it's just flattened out that join, just to make sure that you can't see even a small ridge on the forehead. And so you pull the skin back, you sew the skin back together, comb the hair over it, and you wouldn't even know that the brain had been removed. The next thing we do is to wash the body completely. The hair can be shampooed and cleaned. Slightly disconcerting when you've moved on to the next body and you start thinking, what's the battle blossom? 
on next to you, but I know it's just that the hair's being washed and the body's completely clean um, and then it's ready to be viewed as the family wants to do so. And we've certainly, it's not unusual for the family to say the person looks a lot better now than they did before they were. <laughs> um, so reconstruction, extremely important and something that the anatomical pathology technologists are particularly skilled at. I've seen people who've gone through windscreens whose faces are in tatters have them reconstructed so that their mothers could see them um, <coughs> before they're buried. And very quickly, the future. Well, I've said that postmortems have been pretty similar for the last 500 years. There's a limit to what you can do with a body and a knife. But actually, uh, CT scans may well be the future. Um, a lot of this is actually happening in some places. There are some religious groups, particularly, that don't like the bodies being desecrated after death. And so they've put a lot of money into research, um, looking at CT scans. And these are very good for some causes of death. So I shouldn't really be doing this very embarrassing <coughs> a radiologist in the audience. <laughs> this, this is the heart sitting in its sac, the pericardium. Um, and here, where the star is, this is fluid surrounding the heart. And that's bad. This is the fluid <coughs> in the pericardial sac that shouldn't be there. So what's happened, this person's had a heart attack and their heart's effectively burst. The hole has developed in the wall of the heart and the blood has tracked through it and surrounded the heart. And every time the heart pumps, it's pumping blood out and surrounding it. And then, because it's in a sac that can't expand, it's then compressing the heart so it stops beating. So this is a very good um, way of recognising this hemopericardium, blood in the pericardial sac. And we know straight away that's the cause of death, because that's not something that you can survive. Another example, here is somebody who's had a bleed in their brain, so they've had a stroke, and that shows up very nicely, very differently from the rest of the brain. Um, and so for some causes of death, CT postmortems are excellent. But for others, they're not quite as good, and not as accurate as actually doing a conventional postmortem. So for example, those heart attacks that I talked about, where you've only got two to three millimetres of clot blocking an artery, that's actually quite hard to see on imaging. Now, there are, um, there's lots of work being done on perhaps injecting uh, some sort of dye into the vessels of the heart, and that makes it easier to see those blockages. So I would imagine that in the future, um, imaging techniques like CT scans will be used. However, we have got a limited number of CT scanners, and they're generally pretty busy being used for the living. They also take longer and cost a lot more than just having a pathologist come along and do a postmortem. So uh, I suspect we won't see them in routine use very soon, but I think they'll be a very useful adjunct to doing our postmortems. And what it may do, it may enable us to focus in on one particular area, or we may perhaps just be able to take a biopsy through the skin. If, for example, the scan shows there's something wrong with the liver, we can't tell what, then we could do a liver biopsy where we just take a small piece of liver and look at it under the microscope and we can make the diagnosis without doing the whole postmortem. Because we recognise that no matter how respectful we are um, to the deceased, that it's not always something that the relatives are very happy having done to their loved one. So just to leave you quickly with a summary of common causes of death. So there are about 500,000 deaths every year in the UK. These are the latest figures from 2011. And the big two are cancers and circulatory diseases. 
So these are heart attacks and cancers, not surprisingly. And then there is respiratory diseases uh, like pneumonias um, and obstructive airways disease, the other thing you get from smoking, are also quite common. And so the answer, if you want to live to a ripe old age, we all know it, um, is to eat healthily, stay active, and the most important thing, do not smoke. Smoking is probably the one worst single thing that you can do um, to your body. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm very